0: Hi, I'm Andy Sohn. Camp Arcadia and Church Extension Fund are two of my favorite ministries. I came to camp for Teen and Family Weeks and worked on staff there for four of the best summers of my life. I grew in mind, body, and spirit. CEF's mission to help build God's kingdom is integral to places like camp that make ministry happen. CEF provides loan and investment options for Lutherans and other ministries. To learn more about how you can get involved, visit mi-cef.org. Church Extension Fund, building the future in Him. Welcome to the 2022 season of the Arcadia Cast. Camp Arcadia's Dean and Lecturers program recorded live in the assembly during the 100th anniversary season. In groupings of episodes, we will feature each series of lectures shared during camp's 2022 season. So grab your cup of coffee and imagine Lake Michigan out the windows to your right as you tune in and join the camp community in listening and learning.
1: Blessed Lord, we are grateful for the opportunity to study your word, to learn more about you, and especially, Lord, about how we can receive all things from you. We don't need to make much of ourselves because you have made much of us in your son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. I want to start here. That we live in noisy times, clamorous times, with the beep, 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 and the buzz, 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 and the wah, wah, wah. I have small children, as you might have guessed. <laughs> uh, we live in noisy times, whether you're talking about the, the clamor. okay? There's more, on the way. there's more on the way. Whether it's the, the clamor of social media and cable news, or whether it's all of the loudness of the busyness of our lives, there's so much noise in our times. We live in noisy times, and at the same time, they are rife with restless ambition, restless ambition. And I wrestled with the right word to use to describe that ambition. The one that the scriptures often use is selfish ambition, and we'll talk about that. But I think that there's a restlessness beneath that. St. Augustine famously said, our hearts are restless, O Lord, until they rest in you. And so we have this kind of restless ambition, this striving, this toiling, this climbing, trying to get Well, we don't necessarily know where or what it is that we're after, and it leaves us feeling anxious and frustrated and spent. So I look for wisdom, as I so often do, in Pearls Before Swine, uh, which is one of my favorite comics. I'm going to say it's the second best comic after Calvin and Hobbes. Any Calvin and Hobbes fans out there? Are you guys familiar with Pearls Before Swine? Okay, well, let this be your introduction then. So you have the character Pig here who says, Hey, Andy Achiever, want to hang out and chat? Can't, training to finish an Ironman in under 12 hours. Hey, Andy Achiever, want to have a lemonade with me? Can't, training to finish an Ironman in under 11 hours. Hey, Andy Achiever, want to watch the birds with me? Can't, training to finish an Ironman in under 10 hours. Hey, Andy Achiever, want to relax and enjoy the sunset with? Can't, training to honk, honk, screech, smack. Tell me again what the point of ambition is. It's like lunacy, but less fun. Now, I know that there might be some of you guys in here who have done Iron Man. Iron Man? Is that the proper term <laughs> Iron Man's? Um, or have, have that driving sense. And In fact, I know that that's the case. And I hope that you're able to laugh at that as well and to recognize that as much as ambition can be a blessing in terms of that striving and that pushing, and we'll, we'll talk about that, that there is a sense in which it's also a kind of lunacy, but just less fun. As I've observed this kind of ambition and how it plays out in our world, one thing that I've noticed is that in this culture, especially with respect to this topic, there's only one cardinal sin. And what is that one cardinal sin? Settling. You dare not settle. To settle is to confess, to profess that I am just kind of giving up. I'm laying up. I'm opting out. So just to give you a couple of quotes from Joel Osteen key of the best life now says don't settle for mediocrity never let good enough be good enough sounds like good advice fair to say or doris lessing i'm not familiar with i think it's a an author she says there's only one real sin and that is to persuade oneself that the second best is anything but the second best i don't remember that being in the ten commandments there's only one real sin but be that as it may and we have to say yeah that that sounds good And it seems like there's a lot of truth in that. None of us want to be mired in mediocrity to uh, invoke a a PSA that was popular when I was a kid. Remember the one where um, the guy, he says, nobody ever says, I want to be a junkie when I grow up. You guys remember that one? Nobody ever says, I want to be mediocre when I grow up. Nobody ever says, I want to settle And so settling becomes this kind of thing that we're scared of, that we don't want to talk about, that we never want to admit that we might do. And yet, as the author Oliver Berkman says in his wonderful book, 4,000 Weeks, which is an allusion to how long our life is on average, the received wisdom articulated in a 1,000 magazine articles and inspirational Instagram memes is that it's always a crime to settle. But the received wisdom is wrong. You should definitely settle. <laughs> uh, but let's, let's speak a word against settling for a moment. So if I may, what, what are some of the, the benefits of pushing back against settling? Uh, what are some of the good things that come from refusing to accept mediocrity? That's not a trick question. I really I want to, I because there, as I say, there are some benefits and some pros here. So let's hear from the, from the crowd here. What, what are some of the good things about refusing to settle for second best, that one cardinal sin? Or if we don't have any, this is going to be really easy. Yeah, Esther. Okay, then you have a chance at the best. Sandy, were you going to? Okay, very good. Yeah, go ahead. Settling for an evil outcome. Okay, so just giving in to something that's, that's not only not the best, but maybe it might be the worst or something close to it. Good, yeah. Okay, opportunity to serve your neighbor. Very good. We'll come back to that. So if you're eschewing those opportunities. Yeah, Janet. Innovation, innovation right. So um, any of you ever been to the Henry Ford Museum down in, in uh, Southeast Michigan? It's the Museum of Innovation. We wouldn't have many of those things if they were like, you know what? I think the horse and buggy is good enough, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah, my, I don't need a car. My, horse, my horse-drawn carriage is fine. So yeah, innovation, good. Yeah, Patty. Sure. Okay. So um, Patty, who's a golfer, says if you're playing tournament golf, you don't want to come in second. But Patty, is it fair to say that sometimes you need to lay up? <laughs> Just saying. I'm not a good golfer though. So well, she says maybe, uh, maybe not. Anything else? Some of, some of those benefits. Yeah, Ben. You build your confidence, right? Through that striving, through doing hard things, testing yourself, you build your confidence. Yeah, Rebecca. Great. You're using the gifts that God has given to you. You want to exercise those, those gifts and those skills that, that God has given to you. Absolutely. Yes, Cindy. A ship cannot turn unless it's moving. Need to keep moving. Yeah. And a shark dies if it stops swimming, right? So we need to be out there looking for blood in the water. Uh, no. But no, your point is well taken. That's good. Anyone else? Okay, so... Oh, go ahead. You get to strive for excellence, right. Again, excellence is a good thing. Mediocrity is... You never go to some kind of business or... It isn't on one of the walls here at Camp Arcadia. We are striving for mediocrity, right? That's just not the case. You know, I think maybe Chip would be able to sleep a little bit better at night if that were the case, but yeah. Yep, just keep moving, right? I mean, that's Dory, right? Finding Nemo, just keep swimming, just keep swimming. Although some would say that's a kind of a settling, perhaps. But go ahead. To do what you can? Okay. How do you? Yeah. So how do you know that that's God's plan to just sit there? Okay. Good. So how do you know that that's God's plan to just sit there and be lazy? Good. All right. Now we're talking. Now you guys are giving me some things to work with here. Good. Uh yeah, so don't, don't walk away from, from today or indeed this week and say, Pastor Tenetti told me that we should just be mediocre mediocre, and we shouldn't try and we should just, you know, kind of lay on the couch. Not the message today, guys. Although if you want it to be the message, you know, we can talk and I'll see what I can do. But <laughs> go ahead and turn, turn the page. <clears throat> I, this topic is very personal to me as I've been reckoning with my own sense of, of ambition throughout my life and what is the, the role and the, and the place of it. And, uh, hope Sarah's making through with more handouts. If you need a handout, get a hand up, you'll get a handout. (laughs) Um, so just a little bit about my story, which some of you will have heard before and be familiar with, but so just bear with me. But, um, I'm a kid from the suburbs. I'm from Metro Detroit originally. Uh, I went to MSU, go green. And, uh, Served as a, a missionary overseas, so lived in Thailand. It's through that experience, that I met my lovely wife, Ann, who's not Thai. Um, she's from Colorado. But we were both, <laughs> we were both doing that same, uh, same journey with the LCMS World Mission. Came back, went to seminary in St. Louis, and now I've had the opportunity. We, we planted a church in Arizona, which failed. For those of you guys who were with us said last year or two years ago, I, my theme was Lessons from a Failed Missionary. So you see where my ambitions have gotten me. But um, we, pl- we planted a church and we uh, have served churches in California, and, in Monterey Peninsula and in the Northwest, in Washington State. And I had, had sensed this growing sense within me of wanting to do more, to be more, to go further. I've been haunted for the longest time by that parable, that story that Jesus tells, the parable of the talents. You remember this one, right? And where um, there's the, the talents, and one has the, the one, another one has the two, another one has the five, or it's, you know, two, five, and ten, depending on which gospel writer. And the, as the story goes, you know, the, the first two guys who've got the five and the ten talents, they go out and they, you know, they do business, and they make five and ten more, and they receive that commendation from the Lord. Well done, good and faithful servant, right? And then there's the third servant, and what does he do with his talent? He buries it in the ground, right? He's a sensible chap. He says, hey, listen, you know, uh, the market's down right now. I don't want to lose anything. I'm just going to bury it in the ground. And I've been haunted by this story because as I've read it and as I've thought about it, it's basically been like an army commercial, right? Be all that you can be. And that's the way I've heard it and read it. And it's kind of haunted me with the sense of, am I being all that I can be? Am I fulfilling the Lord's plan for myself? I think it's a good question to ask and to be posing to ourselves, to be wrestling with in prayer with the Lord. But I don't think it's as simple as there's always more that you could be doing. I don't think it's as simple as you should always be climbing higher or striving for more and better. Sometimes the five talents and the ten talents that the Lord has given to you and entrusted to you are meant to be used and employed right where you are and in ways that might not look to the world as though they're all that fancy or ambitious. And so for myself, I'm trying to, in a sense, reckon with how is it that this suburban kid who was striving and going all over, kind of jet set around the world, ended up in little old Arcadia, right? And I love it here. My family loves it here. We've recently um, purchased some, some land here, and we're, we're digging down roots here. And so part of this for me is just kind of joint therapy, as together we try to figure out what's right. No. Um, but it is personal for me. And actually, I kind of had this moment of, of epiphany um, in terms of just being on the ladder and that, that ambition uh, a few years back when we were on a family vacation on a road trip. We were living in Washington State at the time. And we were going down to California to visit my in laws, Pete and Cindy, who are here with us. Hi, guys. And we were driving down, and actually, we were on the way back. Now, those of you who are dads will know that anytime you're on a road trip, you have one mission to make good time. <laughs> what is good time? Nobody knows. <laughs> but you've got to do it. You've got to do it. And you feel so good when you do Oh, I make great time. You tell other dads, you're like, what kind of time do you make? <laughs> it was a good time. It was a good time. So I was trying to make good time coming back from uh, California, back up to Washington. We were going through some, I don't know, a little out of the way, two-lane highway through Oregon, and I was going the speed limit. <clears throat> I was busting it pretty good until eventually we heard that telltale, whoop. Uh, Dad, what is that? Don't worry about it, kids. Just uh, (laughs) a friend of mine. We're just checking in real quick. So we pull over, and the guy comes up, you know. And he didn't look like a philosopher. And I didn't expect to suddenly be uh, faced with this existential philosophical question. I don't think he intended it as such. But he came up to the window, and what he said to me was simply this. Why are you in such a hurry? Why are you in such a hurry? I think he was referring to the speed of my vehicle at the moment, <laughs> but for whatever reason, you know, maybe we're we fresh off of vacation, and you know, a space like this, you spend some time reflecting and thinking. And I'd been been wrestling with some of these things, like where where am I going? What do I really want out of life? That suddenly it hit me. Why am I in such a hurry? What is it that I really want and that I'm striving after so hard? And would I even know it if I got it? So that, was, that kind of set me off on this uh, journey mm-hmm. that continues, but that has led us in part here to Arcadia. And I'll be happy to share more about that as we go along. I want to say an underscore here, as number two on your handout says, that the solution to the restless ambition of our age is not to be found in surrendering to Netflix binges, endless scrolling, and booze, all right? You can go ahead, if you've got a pencil, you can underline that, circle that, just to be clear here, all right? And Chad Bird, uh, who uh, just I draw so much from, and I'm so indebted to him. And many of you will know Chad. He was supposed to be a dean next week, and uh, Chad tragically lost his his son in a accident in South America. And so um, hearts just break for Chad and his wife Stacy as um, they're just they're wrestling with that. And I will say this though: if if there's any man that I know who has learned grace firsthand and who has a faith that will be able to survive through such an awful thing is chad bird and i'm grateful grateful for that in his book upside down spirituality he says this by ambition i don't mean the get up and go quality of a person who is driven to accomplish goals such an energetic approach to life is not only virtuous and healthy but it's built into us by the god who formed us to work with our hands and do good deeds proverbs urges us to emulate the ant after all not the sloth which I felt a little convicted by because the three-toed sloth has always been one of my favorite animals. <laughs> Just such an interesting critter, you know? Adam trying to name all the animals. Like, well, here you go, Adam. This is a sloth. But, so it's, uh, he's, he's drawing this contrast here. And David Brooks in his book, The Road to Character, draws a similar kind of, of contrast between what he calls Adam 1 and Adam 2. He says, Adam 1 is the, the external hard-driving guy. Adam 1 is the one who, who has that energetic push, who's the one who's career-oriented and resume-focused. And in fact, that's what he says. He says, Adam 1 is focused on what we might call resume goals. Okay? But then he says there's also Adam 2. And Adam 2 is more interested in virtue, in nurturing character, on the inner life. Adam 2, he says, cares more about eulogy goals. Isn't that interesting? You've got your resume goals, the things that I have to sell myself with, and then there's the eulogy goals, the things that you actually want people to say when you pass. But Then he says this. I've uh, got it printed for you here. He says, The outer majestic Adam and the inner humble Adam are not fully reconcilable. We are forever caught in self-confrontation. We're called to fulfill both personae and must master the art of living forever within the tension between these two natures. All right, now my Lutheran kind of paradox radar suddenly goes up. Wait a second, inhabiting tension. Beep, 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 beep. What's he talking about here? He's saying, look, it's not a, a matter of either you have Adam one or you have Adam two. Either you are somebody who is energetic and who is striving after things or you're someone who is just interested in kind of cultivating the inner life. But in fact, that we live within this tension. And the question then is, how do you inhabit that tension? How do you live with it? For you folks who were worshiping at Trinity yesterday and and heard me preach, I laid out a paradox there. So you guys know my appreciation and and fondness for paradoxes. And I think we're, we're hot on the trail of another one here. As so I say, number three on your handout, the solution to this restless ambition of our age may be found in unambitious ambition, unambitious ambition. And the key verse is 1 Thessalonians, verses I guess, 1 Thessalonians four eleven and 12, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, attend to your own business and work with your hands so that you might walk gracefully toward outsiders. Just side note, this is one of those verses that when you come across it in the Bible, you're like, this is in the Bible? <laughs> you ever have those moments when you're reading the Scriptures? You're like, I can't believe that that's in the Bible. Like, this is runs so contrary to um, what is not just out in the culture at large, but I want to say even within Christian culture, where there is this, this push and this urge, like, don't be ordinary. You've got to be radical for Jesus, right? You've got to be doing great things, big things. You've got to leave your mark. You've got to change the world. That's a, a phrase we'll come back to later. And then you read something like Paul here, and it's in the, in the larger context of chapter 4 in First Thessalonians. He, the, the beginning of that chapter, he says, this is the will of God. All right, now he's going to lay out the will of God, and he gives several things related to kind of personal ethics and so forth, and he kind of culminates here in 11 and 12, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Boom. This is the unambitious ambition. And what we're going to do throughout this week is to unpack this verse and take it kind of phrase by phrase, because I think that we have in here a kind of roadmap for leading quiet lives of of faith. I'm hesitant to do a kind of prayer Jabez thing where I pull out some random verse from the Bible and I say, "This is the one secret." Actually, everything else that's in there is just kind of extra stuff. But First Thessalonians four eleven. I'm surprised you guys didn't know this, but so I don't want to prayer Jabez this thing. But I do think, all due respect to prayer of Jabez fans out there, and if your land has indeed grown uh, immensely as a result of that prayer, please let me know. As now I am a land owner, so. <clears throat> Uh, but we're going to unpack this first because I do think there's a lot of wisdom in there, especially for these times in which we live. And another way of putting this is that we're seeking to become Marys in a Martha world, right? You remember the story, Mary and Martha, Jesus doing his unannounced visit to Mary and Martha, you know, Jesus, so good to see you. You know, you should have called. <clears throat> Mary, please, can you get up? I'm just going to sit here. Um, But you remember this story, and Mary is sitting there receiving from the Lord, sitting at his feet, listening to his, his teaching. Martha's running around, getting everything ready, and the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things, but you have need of one thing. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. You have need of one thing. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Is there room for us to be Martha as well? Yes. But what Jesus says is what's primary, what matters more than anything else is precisely receiving from me, drawing your identity from me, your worth, your value from me. That's the one thing needful, the sine qua non, without which nothing else. And so that's another way to think about what we're going to be delving into this week. It's how to be Mary's in a Martha world that is anxious and troubled about many things. So kind of just my one-liner here is that in these noisy times, rife with restless ambition, nothing is more needed and more salutary than Christians leading quiet lives of unambitious ambition. All right, let me pause there for questions, comments, pushback, so far. Go ahead, Sally. The idea of spiritual gifts was uh-huh. very, very freeing for me because there's some things I'm good at and there's some yeah. things
2: I'm not. So yeah. if somebody asked me to sit in the choir, I just
1: say, it's not nice. Well, I asked you to do that that one time, but no, <laughs> just kidding. So what, what Sally's saying is the idea of spiritual gifts is very freeing because you recognize that there's ways that God has equipped you, there's ways that He hasn't. You don't have to be all things to, to all people necessarily. So you have Right. You're just not good at. Yeah, you don't have to beat your head against the wall trying to achieve something you're just not good at. Well put, Cindy. Did you have your hand up? Or I did. And I'm just wondering how Martha with the woman. Oh gosh. Okay. How does Martha fit in with the Proverbs 31 woman? Well, we'll be taking that up on the porch later. That's a good. <laughs> that's a good question. Well, we'll hold, hold that thought. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, we'll go let me let me get in get my flux capacitor and we'll see what we can do. Yes, yeah, dan Did
2: you find the same
1: experience in Thailand? Oh, great question. Um uh, yeah, did you find the same experience in Thailand? I mean, it's it's stereotypical of of Asian cultures that um I mean, they're very different from uh, from America in so many ways. But in Thailand in particular, even though I lived in Bangkok, right? It's a big city. I would say in many ways, uh, I, I saw something very different. Yeah, I mean, there wasn't that same kind of push and drive as career-oriented. I think to the extent that it's become more and more uh, modernized, it's probably more there, but certainly not the, the traditional kind of culture. So, yeah, two more. Go ahead, Esther. Oh, oh. Pushed by our parents, yeah. Go to the college, get grades, do, and then we push it on. Yeah, and we're. It's like we're yeah, that's a great point. We've we've been pushed, and so then we push. And where does the cycle stop? Yeah, that's really good. Okay, one more. Go ahead, Pete. So, um, the sermon on the mount. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Jesus uh, says, "Don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat, where." Right. Presumably. And then he up about, uh, being about yeah. Uh, so, kind of fly in the of what you're to do? So, what, um, Pete's picking up on Jesus' words, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. No, I think it's, it goes right along with it, actually, because it's, you no, know, I don't need to be anxious about tomorrow. What's the good work that God has put right before me? What are the things that I, that I can do? Uh, you're, uh, a little bit skeptical. Good. That's my father-in-law. It's okay. He can be skeptical. Um, but we'll we'll continue with that. Go ahead, Marion. Yeah. Contentment. Contentment. Yes, that's right. That's right. And that's one that we'll we'll delve into a little bit more. Very good. So I want to I want to unpack this tension and this paradox of unambitious ambition, because when you're trying to live into that tension, uh, it's difficult, and the natural thing is to try and relieve the tension by falling off all the way in one direction or the other, okay? And so what I want to to do is try and normalize that tension a little bit and show how, um, how it can go wrong if we fall off just in one way or the other, but see how instead we want to live in that tension and in so doing, follow in the footsteps of our Lord Jesus. So the first temptation, we're on page three now of your handout, the first temptation is only to focus on the unambitious side of things, to tune in and to drop out, if you will, right? And um, Paul writes at a time when there was this group called the Epicureans. You ever heard of the Epicureans, right? This was the, the, the MO, the modus operandi of the ancient Epicureans of Paul's day who withdrew from public life and they didn't engage in public affairs or politics. When Paul says, uh, uh, says about leading a quiet life, the Epicureans were like, sign us up. That's exactly what we're after. And still, there's a, a kind of Epicurean strain to a certain extent in our own day. And we have to say that as sinners who are saved by grace, who know that it depends not on him who wills or runs, this is an appealing option, right? Just checking out, unambitious, not even going to try, right? Not even going to push forward. I'm just going to totally... Be satisfied with whatever I am, wherever I am, fine. You know, Proverbs 17. Better is a dry morsel and quietness with it than a house full of feasting with strife. That might go back to the Proverbs 31 thing. We'll have to talk about that later. Or Ecclesiastes 4 6. One hand full of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after wind. If there's ever a book of the Bible that makes you think, you know what? Maybe I just need to be unambitious. It's Ecclesiastes, right? Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Well, all right, Netflix it is. Um, And yet, there is truly such a thing as positive ambition. And we've already touched on that a little bit of, you know, maybe better put as kind of drive of, of that energetic pursuit of good things that God has put before us, using our gifts well. One word that's used in the scriptures is the Greek word, sorry, I meant to put like a transliteration of this, but it's philotemeomai, which is literally a love of honor, a love of honor. That's the word that's used in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Um, It's an honor not for oneself, but an honor for God. This word comes up in a couple of key places. In Romans 15, Paul says, thus I make it my ambition, my philotemeomai, to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. I mean, when you look at Paul's life, you'd say, this is a guy who's incredibly ambitious, right? He's traveling all over the world. I don't think they even had, you know, uh, airlines yet, although maybe that was better, actually. because he, he was able to just take boats everywhere, and it was, so there he was keeping it together, the ambitious and the unambitious side, sailboats. But um, he had that ambition. He was a man of drive, of energy, but he was doing it for the sake of the gospel. And 2 Corinthians 5 says, therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. So, uh, while there might be this temptation just to have the the unambitious side, that fails to do justice to the fact that we are creatures made in the image of God who have been endowed with wonderful gifts of our Creator, who are called and equipped in order to serve our neighbor. And so if we just do the unambitious side, we say, you know what? I'm saved by grace. I can just kind of check out. uh, Then we don't do justice to who we are as those who are beloved and claimed by Christ, okay? We want to hold on to that and recognize there is a salutary way in which we can embrace that sort of drive and energy. As uh, Craig Hill, who was a teacher of mine, he says in his book, The Greatest Among You, the value of ambition in and of itself is ambiguous. It's the fire that warms the house or, unchecked, burns it to the ground. A gifted person who lacks ambition will achieve little, Yes, and the worst people in history have been spectacularly (laughs) ambitious. To be or not to be ambitious is thus not the question. Instead, we must ask toward what are we ambitious and why, right? Because we are like those ships moving through the water, like sharks who are always on the move. Like, we are going to be ambitious in some way, shape, or form. We can't totally check that out or give that up. Or if we do, part of us dies, because God has made us. He's made us to be creatures who are striving after things. But the real question is, what does that ambition look like? And does it have to be for these grandiose kinds of things? Or can it be kept in touch with contentment as well? So think about how Jesus lived in this tension. He was irrepressibly ambitious for his Father's kingdom. He was Constantly on the move for the sake of his father's kingdom. To give just two examples. Luke four forty three, Jesus said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Jesus has that drive, he has that energy, he knows who he is and what he's about, and he's getting after it. Uh, From the Psalms, which is, you know, before the New Testament, obviously, but I think speaking of our Lord Jesus, says, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Jesus doesn't say, you know what, I think we'll stop at Nazareth. "Ah, We've kind of made our name here, made our claim here, and this seems like good enough. We'll kind of have our outpost of the kingdom, and as for the rest of the world, it can just go to Hades in a handbasket. No, Jesus sends out, you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus has an ambition for nothing less than the whole creation. Now, he's the Son of God, that's his prerogative, right? But we're going to see how he also has that unambitious side to him as well. So that brings us to the reverse temptation. So if on the one hand there's that temptation only to focus on the unambitious side of things and and just say, you know what, enough is enough, I'm, I'm done. There's also, and even more so I think in our day and age, that reverse temptation just to focus on the ambitious side of things. Carpe diem, right? Or in modern terminology, YOLO, you only live once. You got to go after it. You got to get it. You got to make the most of it. You got to make something of yourself. At the same time, I mentioned the Epicureans. Also in Paul's day, there was the moral philosopher Plutarch. And he held that ambition was actually a social virtue and that entering public affairs was imperative. There's many of those voices today as well. I like, guess this is what you have to do. And again, even as a, as a Christian, this is what you have to do. You've got to be out there. You got even, we, you know, we'll sanctify it. We'll baptize it. You got to be out there for Jesus, right? You got to make Jesus famous. I hear people say that. I'm like, I'm pretty sure he's the most famous dude already. <laughs> not sure what I'm going to do to make him more famous, but yeah, be that as it may. And once again, as we've seen, trying to live in that tension, the certain measure of drive and ambition can be not only appropriate, but positively necessary. Paul again, First Corinthians 9 Therefore, I run in such a way as not to run aimlessly. I box in such a way as to avoid hitting air. But I strictly discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Right? You know, you read texts like that and suddenly you hear... Rocky, anybody? Okay. Uh, I'm not going to box the air. You chase chickens instead. Um, But, uh, so there's that sense, and it's especially salutary when channeled in service to the neighbor, as we've mentioned before. You consider also Dorcas, my favorite name from the Bible. It doesn't seem to be getting picked up in our modern day. You'll look in vain on the social security list for Dorcas on the most popular names. It's weird. But anyway, Dorcas is said to be full of good works. She was ambitious for her neighbor. She was striving after and toiling for the sake of others. Okay? So, there's that positive side of it. More often than not, though, and I would say especially in our day, it is selfish ambition. And the scriptures have another word for this, Eritheia, Born of an anxious desire to make something of ourselves. It's a really key phrase. You hear this a lot. I want to make something of myself. I want to leave my mark on the world. And hopefully it's not just going to be tire tracks, right? I want to make something of myself. How did Jesus feel about that? What was his attitude toward making something of yourself? You know who wanted to make something of themselves? James and John. Remember this moment when they come to Jesus and in one of my favorite hilarious questions, they say, Jesus, yes, James and John, we want you to do for us whatever it is we ask you to do. <laughs> really, guys? That's, we want you to do whatever. But then Jesus doesn't say, get right out of here. He says, okay, what is it? There's a lesson there for us in prayer. There's a lesson there for us in prayer. But they say, well, we want want you to let us sit, uh, uh, each of us, uh, on your right hand and on your left when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, listen, guys, it's not for me to grant, right? It's not the way it's going to be. And seeing the kind of selfish ambition underneath that question and that, that pride, he calls together the disciples who are all teed off at James and John Maybe because they asked that dumb question or maybe they're mad that they didn't ask it first, right? Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. With that one simple phrase, Jesus deconstructs an entire worldview. It shall not be so among you. This is the way the world works. You know, we are striving to get ahead. We're striding over the corpses of the, of the vanquished. That's the idea, is that I've got to do what I've got to do in order to get mine, to make something of myself. It shall not be so among you. Philippians 2.3 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So when you're in line at the teepee waiting for that ice cream, you say, no, please. You go in front of me. Yeah, no, I'm not so sure about that. Like, my religion can only go so far. I, <laughs> every week when we we would come throughout the week to um, last night to the the talent show or uh, the welcoming event or whatever, and we would do it out at the chapel on the beach a few times, you know. And uh, they would sit, announce the cherry pie and the ice cream afterwards, right? And there's my kids just. elbowing people out of the way afterwards to run like George Costanza when there's the fire inside the apartment, right? Like, who are these kids? Somebody ought to really bring them up in the fear of the Lord, but it is cherry hut pie, though. I mean, to be fair. Um, Where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, James says, there will be disorder and every vile practice, and on and on it goes. Scriptures speak this way many, many times. Uh, if we had a little bit more time, and if you want to um, grab my ear, bend my ear later, I'd love to share with you more about the contrast between two characters in Wendell Berry's wonderful novel, novel Jaber Crow, um, Athy and Troy. And uh, just for the sake of time, I'm going to leave that out today. But suffice it to say, it won't be the last time you hear from a guy named Wendell Berry, one of my very favorite, most influential guys in my life. So um, we'll just leave that as is for now. So here we see how Jesus, we talked about how he was ambitious for God's kingdom, but he was also unambitious to make much of himself, but ambitious to make much of you, see. When you think about how Jesus was unambitious, what are some of the things that come to mind from the Gospels? How do you see Jesus being unambitious? Can you think of any examples of that? Yeah, Esther. Sleeping on the boat. Again, one of my favorite points to make I often do, is if somebody asks you, what would Jesus do? Just remember, one of the options is taking a nap, okay? (laughs) And it might be the best option at the moment, too. So, okay, so we see him sleeping, yeah? Uh, Going out in the wilderness. wilderness. By himself, himself. yep. I need to spend some time with the Father in prayer. Yeah, very good. Other ways that we see Jesus, yeah, yeah? Not Not making buddies with the Pharisees, right? Jesus was not a great networker. You know, you see the people that he surrounds himself with, like Jesus. If if we're going to get you a better platform, it's all in who you know. All right, you got a bunch of fishermen and these these guys that are low lives. No, that's not that's not who you should have. Yeah, Dad, you give them something to eat. You give them something to eat, right? Say, ah, I don't need to do it. You can you can do it. Yeah, go ahead. He doesn't save himself, he doesn't save himself on the cross. I mean, this is the the ultimate sign of our Lord's unambition. He's like, you know that if I wanted to, I'd call down angels at any time. He doesn't do it. He doesn't do it. Yes, Andy? Yeah. Yeah, they they wanted him to promote himself, and he wouldn't do it. He refused to do it. He had so many... Again, when he has a big crowd behind him, when finally it starts to grow and the Jesus movement is going, Jesus turns around, and what's the next thing he says? Y'all need to hate your mother, right? Right? Like, oh Jesus, the PR on this is t- the optics are not good, Lord, right? I know we can nuance this, but if we want to really grow this, yeah, Stephanie. Yeah, yeah. Do I have to do this? Right. He's, he's going to submit to the Father, but like, yeah, he's he's okay with letting it go. Yeah. He doesn't heal everybody. Now, this is a really great point. Jesus doesn't heal everybody. Jesus, uh, to put it in modern parlance, knows his boundaries, right? He doesn't say, okay, keep them going. Like Jesus heals those, he heals. He does what he can do. And then he steps away. It's a remarkable thing. Yes, Andy. Never, Never, yeah. The son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Yeah, right. So many ways that we see this unambitious side of our Lord. But he is ambitious to make much of you. And that's what he has done. 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Listen, guys. If the Son of God shed his blood in order to make you his own, he set the market for your value, right? You are of inestimable worth. You don't need to make much of yourself because Jesus has made everything of you already. If you did check out today, if you did stop and you were going to Netflix binge, don't recommend it. But still, you are of inestimable worth because your value comes from what he says of you and not from what the world says of you. Jesus says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He's not about climbing the ladder upwards, but instead that downward mobility in order to lift others up. It's not about the great things that we do. And so instead, I love this quote from Mother Teresa. She famously put it, we can do no great things, only small things with great love. That's the motto of the unambitious ambition. Can't do great things. We can do small things with great love. All right. By my watch, I've got two minutes left. So, Dave, bear with me. I want to I close with this. America's first president, who is George Washington, is the earthly archetype of unambitious ambition. Uh, this is a, a quote from an article. Baltimore's Washington Monument. Not Washington's Washington Monument, but Baltimore's Washington Monument. Anybody from Baltimore or been there before? a okay. couple, um, located in the city's Mount Vernon neighborhood is less famous than its Washington, D.C. counterpart, but it's arguably more interesting. The monument is a 180-foot tower with a 15-foot George Washington statue on top, but Washington isn't depicted in his military uniform. Instead, he's dressed in a Roman toga, and he's laying down a scroll he holds in his hand. Why a toga instead of a tri hat? It's because this Analogy, this historical analogy, have been made with Washington and a guy from um, ancient Rome by the name of Cincinnatus, Cincinnatus. And the reason is this: Cincinnatus, in the fifth century .BC, was this Roman proconsul and general, and he had retired, he had this great history and legacy of all these many victories, and he had retired to his farm to live quiet life. Uh, but the enemies were at the gate, and they called back uh, Cincinnatus and said, "We need you right now, right?" They said, we're going to give you a six-month carte blanche, absolute power, dictatorship. You get to be the dictator. Come on. He said, All right, here we go. So he goes, he leads Rome's armies into battle, and miracle of miracles, in two weeks, they take care of business. The battle is won. And so now, he's got five and a half months still of absolute power, right? Like, just imagine, yes, what will I do? And everybody was happy to give it to him. Because they're like, dude, Cincinnatus is a stud. There's nobody we would rather have be our dictator. Like, he's our guy. And what does he do? He surrenders his commission, and he goes back to his plow, which history tells us was still in the same place it was where he left it on his farm. George Washington, you may know, almost was a farmer first and foremost. That's what he really loved. As it happened, as the Lord called him, he had this opportunity, this need to lead the Continental Army. He was a great general, brought America through the Revolutionary War. And at the end of the Revolutionary War, when the victory was assured, there George Washington was on top of the world, right? He had carte blanche. He could do whatever he wanted. There were people who were calling for him to be king, even though like we had just fought this revolution against not being under a king, but now we're like, but this guy's awesome, right? Let's bring back the kingship. And what does he do? He resigns. He lays it down. There's a famous painting by this artist, John Trumbull, The Resignation of General George Washington, where he says, enough is enough. And Trumbull, commenting on his work, says, what a dazzling temptation was here to earthly ambition. Beloved by the military, venerated by the people, who was there to oppose the victorious chief, if he had chosen to retain that power which he had so long held with universal approbation. The Caesars, the Cromwells, the Napoleons yielded to the charm of earthly ambition and betrayed their country. But Washington aspired to loftier, imperishable glory, to that glory which virtue alone can give and which no power, no effort, no time can ever take away or diminish. Washington himself said, I have no other view than to promote the public good and am unambitious of honors not founded and the approbation of my country. But here, to me, when I see this, it's really just a vision of our Lord Jesus, right? Who, though he was equal with God, did not count that equality something to be grasped, but emptied himself, and made of himself nothing, a very servant. Why? In order to save you and me. Christ Jesus, who is the true second Adam, is our greater Cincinnatus much greater even than George Washington. He is that one who has come to save us in that unambitious ambition.
0: Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Arcadia Cast. Click on our show notes to find more information about our sponsor, Michigan Church Extension Fund, as well as a link to Camp Arcadia's website, where you can make a gift to support Camp's ministry, view our 2023 season schedule, register for retreats, and learn about serving on summer or end-of-season staff. And make sure to subscribe to the podcast feed so you can see every episode as soon as they are released. We hope today's episode blessed you, and we look forward to bringing you the next one.